This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Treasure Hunt for God, recorded May 17, 2009, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I was uh, once asked to evaluate a talk I'd given. I said it was dull, but at least it was short, so nobody had time to fall asleep. <laughs> so I usually have brevity on my side. So that's it for today. <laughs> no, I actually have several pages here I wrote down. So This morning I thought I'd take up the topic of where is God or where can we find God? Up in the sky or in the trees, in the mountains, on the city streets or in the churches? Maybe we need to look within to find God. Or maybe he's everywhere. Or maybe she's nowhere. So we'll go on a little search here today. Kind of a treasure hunt for God and see what we can find. When I use the name God, it's also the same as any of the other uh, names for the divine reality that different traditions use, such as the Tao, Allah, Buddha nature, Brahman. Consciousness is the name we use at the center here. In this talk, if I use other names, if I use consciousness or God or any of these other names, they're all interchangeable. I guess I use God and consciousness several times kind of interchangeably. And so also we need a couple of parameters as we go in this search. Uh, we need uh, some sort of definition of what God and ultimate reality might be. So we'll see what uh, the mystics have to say. A 10th century Sufi master, the Sufis are the uh, mystics of Islam. He says, he's talking of God, Because thou art eternal and perfect, thou art always confounding the wise. And Shankara, the Hindu, great Hindu mystic, says, Brahman is beyond cause and effect. It is the reality beyond all thought. It is eternally the same, peerless, outside the range of any mental conception. And St. Bonaventure, a Christian, says, All the creatures of the sense world lead the mind of a contemplative and wise man to the eternal God. What all these three mystics said, one, one of the qualities that they all mentioned was being eternal. It's eternalness of God. Eternal. Something that is everlasting, unchangeable, without beginning or end. So we'll keep that definition in the back of our minds as we go on our search and kind of use it as a touchstone to evaluate the genuineness of whatever we find. And uh, one other parameter is that we'll make use of our direct experience. Just our simple direct experience of what's right before us. And we will be guided by the words of Simone Weil, who was a 20th century Christian mystic. She says, in what concerns divine things, belief is not fitting. Only certainty will do. Anything less than certainty is not worthy of God. So I really like that quote. It kind of gives me chills sometimes. What can we be certain of that is eternal? Our two parameters on this search will go on. So when we start on a search like this, we're looking for some eternal and all-powerful God. So we usually see ourselves as something rather insignificant and small in this vast universe. So our inclination is to look outward. Where in this world can we find something eternal? If you're just standing outside and kind of inquisitive and questioning mind, kind of your gaze just naturally rises upwards and you look out at the vast expanse of the universe, the sky and the stars, and the most powerful object you see is the sun. I mean, in a real sense, it gives life and warmth to us here. And it also it can kill. 
you know, the intense heat can kill you, and it can wither crops. And so there's something really very powerful about the sun. And that's been true in past civilizations. The sun has always been a prominent god that uh, different civilizations have used. From the mighty sun gods of Egypt, to the Shinto religion of Japan and their sun goddess Amaterasu, who was perhaps the most important Shinto deity. The Aztec civilization was fascinated with the sun. Much of their culture revolved around it from the use of human sacrifices to ensure that the sun continued to evolve and move through the sky to a very accurate solar calendar they developed. The Greek pantheon, the god Apollo, is quite important. So sun worship has been quite prevalent for thousands of years. But also the thing that is obvious about the sun is that it disappears every night. This can be a nice metaphor about birth and renewal, but if we're looking for something eternal, which is one of our parameters here, eternal and unchanging, then this is rather problematic. We uh, can see from the cultures themselves, uh, in, in these ancient cultures, we create stories about this missing sun, about how the sun lived in the tiger goddess at night and shone through its eyes. Or they would create stories about the, the sun as a male deity and the moon as a female deity in this complementariality somehow created this, this wholeness. But this is really just kind of putting lipstick on a pig to use the metaphor from the past election. It really doesn't get around the fact that just in our direct experience, the sun disappears. So it, it can't be eternal. You know, eventually the sun died out as an object of worship. There's not too many places on the earth today where it's worshipped as a main deity. But still, many people have an image of God as a big daddy in the sky, or the heaven is up in the clouds. And these are all really carryovers from these past cultures. And even this day of the week, Sunday, is named after the uh, goddess Sol, a day to honor the sun. So even in our sophisticated society, there remains these influential images of the power of the sun in the sky. But since it's obvious that the sun disappears, and can't be this in eternal, unchanging God that we're looking for. We'll put that to the side and continue on our search. Now, the image of the sky is rather mysterious and has a spacious quality that mystics like to point to when they compare the God. It's like the sky, and all these clouds pass through the sky, these pretty puppy clouds, or the thin high clouds, or the massive storm clouds with thunder and lightning. But all clouds eventually pass, and the sky remains unchanged. So, God can be like the sky, but it, is it literally the sky? Well, if we walk into a cave to cool off on a hot day, has anyone been in those lava tube caves out of Bend here in Oregon? We was in there uh, four or five years ago. And you, you walk in, and it has a really high ceiling, probably eight or nine foot high, and you keep walking in, and light, it's light still coming in. The farther you walk back and back, you know, the ceiling gets lower and lower, and the cave gets smaller and smaller. Finally, the last few feet, it's, you, know, you have to have flashlights, it's so dark. You can't even stand up, you're almost crawling on your hands and knees, and you squeeze through this one little <coughs> spot, and you reach this end of the, at least this one cave, the end of the cave, and it opens up a little bit into like a little nice domed room. It's probably four foot high. There's a group of people, and we all shut our lights off. And it's just blackness. I mean, it's pitch blackness. I mean, it's one of the few places, you know, you literally cannot see the hand in front of your face. And then our experience, what's in our direct experience there? 
just this blackness. Maybe some sounds will be arising, but there's no sky. The sky has totally disappeared. Now we can have a thought that the sky is still there, and we'll get the thoughts a little bit later, but just in our direct experience, there's no sky. And so we can say, it doesn't meet our uh, criteria of being eternal. So another one we have check off our list. We can duplicate that same experiment here. So everybody shut their eyes right now. I mean, we're talking about this in just a simple direct experience. There's no way that we can really say without uh, a shadow of a doubt that the sky exists. Again, we can have thoughts about it. We'll explore those, but just in our direct experience, when you close your eyes, the sky is gone. You can open them now. So we'll set that aside, and uh, now we'll consider the natural wonders of the earth. Let's start with the, the, the wild and scenic areas. We have beautiful places here in Oregon, these sparkling rivers, and the majestic mountains, and awesome oceans. And I often hear people say that taking a walk in nature is where they find God, so they don't really need any spiritual teachings or practices. So let's take a close look at this. For me, the old growth redwood forests have always been a place that I've found most sacred. I always feel a really sense of calm when I walk into them, and there's this majestic silence in there, and the filtered sunlight coming down to the forest floor, and the little ferns, another undergrowth growing there, and the big fallen trees rotting away as these other giants stand tall. So everything seems almost perfect, like you wouldn't want to change anything, and God does indeed seem very close at hand. Of course, I've also camped in the redwoods when it's down to like 25 degrees at night and I'm freezing my you-know-what off. I'm wrapped up in a couple of sleeping bags and four layers of clothes on and I'm not really having any lofty thoughts of the divine at that point. I just want to survive the night without freezing to death. We'll uh, explore that aspect of it a little bit later, but the awe of the forest is, we'll look at that a little more. Now suppose I have a friend who just loves beautiful cathedrals and has the same feeling of awe when they see a beautiful cathedral. So when I go on my camping trip into the Redwoods, they take a trip to Italy to see the Sistine Chapel, and they're just awestruck by the beauty of these frescoes and the paintings on the ceiling and the walls, and depict the life of Moses and the life of Christ, and they feel that God is just all around them. And so they come back from their vacation, and we meet up for a cup of coffee here in Eugene. And we're sitting there talking about all the, the beauty and how close we felt to God. And again, we're back in, we're in the same place we were back in the cave. Being those places that we felt like we found God have totally disappeared. They're not in our awareness at all. What is before us is, we have our cup of tea back here. All around us is this room and we see other people, but there's this giant redwood forest that totally disappeared from our awareness. The Sistine Chapel was nowhere to be found. And so all these beautiful things, they're not eternal. So they're not this, this God that we're looking for. And by extension, this applies to anything in the created world. You'll notice that moment to moment, everything is arising and disappearing. That it really isn't what we're looking for. That isn't the God we're looking for. So now, uh, Rabia will give us an idea of maybe where we can look next. Rabia is a Sufi mystic. And one day she is meditating in her house and her servant girl who's outside on a either a beautiful spring day or maybe she's watching all the everybody go to the to the mosque whatever the situation she's uh, she yells out to Rabia 
Rabia, Rabia, come outside and enjoy all the wonders of God. And Rabia replies, come inside and discover the God who has created all of this. And this message to look within also comes from a Christian mystic, St. Ephraim of Syria. He says, here within you are the riches of heaven, if you desire them. Here, O sinner, is the kingdom of God within you. Enter into yourself. Seek most eagerly, and you will find it without great travail. Outside you is death, and the door to death is sin. Enter within yourself and remain in your heart, for there is God. And the Buddha also chimes in. He says, In truth, my friend, I tell you that in this very body, mortal as it is, and only a fathom in height, but conscious and endowed with intelligence, there is the world, as well as its increase and its decrease, and the road that leads to the transcendence of it. So the mystics have all noticed the same thing we've been just noticing, namely that everything in the external world is transitory and impermanent. And they suggest we look within ourselves to see if we can uncover this eternal divine reality. So when we look within, what do we find? Well, one of the things is bodily sensations. Aches, pains, itches, muscle tightness. All these things pass fairly quickly, don't they? Uh, most last maybe a few seconds or a few minutes. And some things last a little bit longer, like that freezing cold I was talking about out in the forest. Wake up in the night and you're freezing there and too cold, the body starts shivering and trying to warm itself up. You can stumble out of the tent and turn your car on and get the heater going. And pretty soon this coldness is replaced by warmth. And so that might have lasted an hour or two. And even if you have no, uh, can't seek shelter and uh, you're freezing to death. So it reminds me of a story of the uh, Peace Pilgrim. The Peace Pilgrim is a woman who lived in the last century who basically all she owned was a tunic and a toothbrush and a few stamps and a pencil and a piece of paper. And she walked back and forth across the United States promoting peace. And she had some deep uh, mystical insights. So this is when she was, had just first started out, starting in California, and I think she was in Arizona, maybe, and she kind of going up into the mountains in Arizona, and the day was a beautiful day. But all of a sudden, a, a huge storm came in. It got really cold, and there's just snow, just heavy snow falling down. And it's so heavy, there was no traffic on this road, and there was no place to seek shelter. So she basically, she was freezing to death. She laid down and fell asleep. She had this vision, or right, it was a near-death experience, whatever you want to call it, but she saw her uh, friends and old family, and they greeted her, and she felt really happy and blissful. And I think one of them said that you can't stay here, you have to go back. So she woke up, she found herself laying in this snowdrift. She got up and kind of felt guided where to walk, and pretty soon she found a bridge, and there's a cardboard box under the bridge. She crawled under the, into this box, and and there was enough body heat to uh, keep herself warm all night from freezing to death. I guess the point, the point is that there's always, these bodily sensations are always changing. The cold changed into warmth eventually. Or else if you die, the, the cold is gone and the beatific vision or whatever was there. So another one uh, bites the dust. Bodily sensations. Cross that off the list. Now, uh, sounds, smells, and taste. They're all really quite ephemeral. We notice them you know, rising and passing when we're eating a nice meal. might last a few minutes to taste of these things. But they all pass fairly quickly, and actually we should be happy that that is the case. I read recently where uh, one of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay was actually transferred to Morocco, and they 
played this rap song by Eminem for six months straight, just blared it on. And he thought he was going to go crazy. When any of these things are constant, they become a living hell. Even if it was a Mozart, after six months, it's going to be a living hell. So thankfully, maybe the CD player broke and this guy's sanity was spared. You know, these taste smells and uh, sounds pass quickly. Well, another big thing we find when we look within is emotions. Now, the root word of emotion is demote, which is to move out. So we're already we're kind of on shaky ground if we're looking for something eternal. Some emotions pass quickly, and some can last a little longer, especially if we have some story that feeds them about how somebody has done us wrong or how we're justified to feel this anger toward them. So that can stick around for a while, but eventually, I mean, if you look at your own experience, that passes. Depressed moods can seem like to last a little longer. I used to kind of have a low-level chronic depression that would come on me every, uh, every once in a while. It seemed like it would last for a couple of weeks. But even then, it would all of a sudden there'd be a shift, and I'd feel more alive and a little more energetic. And, and so any, even these moods that last longer, they eventually, eventually pass. Another thing that uh, doesn't last, not eternal. But also, let's look at these, these happy and blissful feelings. That uh, when you're out walking in nature or watching a sunset, feel bliss in meditation. You might say things like, I found God, or I was touched by the divine. But if we really had found the eternal God, then these blissful feelings wouldn't dissipate. But they always do, don't they? Anybody ever found a living in a constant state of bliss? I guess we're going to have to keep searching. Scratch emotions off the list. Now, thoughts are probably the most prolific thing we find when we look within. The mind is always labeling things. Chairs and tables, trees. The mind is always going on and on. We find uh, concepts and beliefs aplenty when we look within. Like when we were back in the cave and the thought and belief that the sky really existed. But uh, we have no direct experience of it. We can strongly hold on to our beliefs and be convinced that they are true, but can't really be certain of them which is one of the guideposts we're using here. And when we can get a, a sense of the ephemeral nature of these beliefs, just look at food preferences, how they changed over time. When I started drinking wine, actually I started drinking like Boone's Farm, and those dollar bottles or whatever when I was in college. That was pretty bad stuff. But uh, eventually graduated into like some Chardonnays and some other nicer uh, white wines. Yeah, I tasted a little red wines occasionally, I never liked those, so my belief was that I wasn't a red wine drinker. But eventually as I got older, I started tasting red wines, and now that's really the only thing I like in wine. Nice complex Cabernet Sauvignon, and these great Pinot Noirs that Oregon is famous for, good Merlot. So kind of white wines now is completely off my radar. So all these beliefs we hold, you know, they're, they're always shifting over time. And even, uh, you know, scientific theories. We think science has kind of found the uh, truth somehow. But if we really look back, and, you know, everyone used to believe that the Earth was the center of the universe, and the sun revolved around, around the Earth. I mean, it just was obvious. You know, you watch the sun come up and move across the sky and go down. I mean, what else could it be? I mean, everybody was totally convinced that that was true. And when Copernicus started talking about this, you know, that uh, really the sun was the center of the solar system and the earth revolved around that. It, it didn't make any sense because, again, the earth has to be spinning. And you, you, everybody knew that if something was spinning that fast, it would be flying off of it. And so it just seemed obvious that that was, that was the case. But eventually, over time, Copernicus's theory is, uh, became accepted as, as the truth. 
So on that, even on that level, these big scientific truths, they're always changing. And it continues even today with the uh, materialism and science have kind of been wedded, but now this uh, quantum mechanics has cast a real doubt on the materialist worldview. So all those, all those beliefs are always changing. Now the strongest held belief we find when we look within is the belief that uh, we are a separate self. And this is continuously being reinforced by almost this constant stream of thoughts that run through our daily lives. But I like this, I don't like that. How can I attain happiness? How can I avoid hardship? Story keeps playing moment after moment, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, lifetime after lifetime, if you believe in reincarnation. So this is a really very powerful drama that captures our attention. And it's not easy to break free of this addiction of this story. That's actually where meditation practices are very useful. But that's another topic. But if we begin to look closely, what is this story really made up of? It's just one thought arising and passing away, and then another thought arising and passing away, and there's really nothing substantial about any of it. Here's what Tibetan mystic Lady Soigel says about thought. She says, they are rainbow fish in the sea of consciousness. So again, it's like they arise out of this sea of consciousness or out of God, and they appear, and they very, can be very beautiful, like a rainbow, it's just gorgeous. Actually, I was in uh, Hawaii recently, and, and it was uh, misting in the morning, and this this beautiful rainbow. And you look out to the ocean, as to you, it was just gorgeous. Thoughts can be like that, we can have very beautiful thoughts. But again, they're like this rainbow, I mean, it was very temporary, and you can't go up and grab a rainbow. It's like you can't grab your thoughts. Where does that leave us? We've looked everywhere. We've looked externally in the world, and now we've looked internally, and we haven't found anything that's permanent. So we've come to the end of our search. <clears throat> not only have we not found God anywhere, but we've lost ourselves in the process. So we're kind of at the end of our rope. We're jumping off point. And this is exactly the kind of place where many mystics have found themselves right before they have a breakthrough. Like Franklin, Dr. Merrill Wolf, who was a Western mystic of the last century, one of Joel's teachers who lived down in uh, Lone Pine, California. He'd been searching for 24 years for the divine. So if you've been searching a long time, don't give up hope. You might find it the same way he did. He had an insight from uh, some spiritual teachings he had been reading. He realized, I am already that which I seek, therefore give up the search. And so his mind just stopped searching. And he wasn't expecting anything to happen, but as he said, the heavens opened up. What do mystics discover in this breakthrough, in this opening? Here's what Christian mystic Meister Eckhart reports. In this breaking through, when I came to be free of will of myself, and of God's will, and of all his works, and of God himself, then I am above all created things, and I am neither God nor creature. But I am what I was, and what I shall remain, now and eternally. Then I received an impulse that will bring me up above all the angels. Together with this impulse, I received such riches that God, as he is God, and as he performs all his divine works, cannot suffice me. For in this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. Then I am what I was, and then I neither diminish nor increase. For I am then an immovable cause that moves all things. So they're finding this eternal. What is eternal in all of this? Which is what we've been searching through for all along. 
that which can't be destroyed, like Meisterkopf says, cannot diminish nor increase. And since they've also seen through this delusion of self in the process, found no uh, nothing eternal there, then they realize that they are identical with its eternal reality, which is beyond any name. To call it God is arbitrary. To call it Buddha nature is arbitrary. To call it the Tao is arbitrary. Although uh, Lao Tzu had some good reason. He said, for lack of a better name, I call it the Tao. If you're going to talk about it, you've got to call it something. So. Now here at the center, we've chosen the name consciousness to identify the eternal reality because it is a generic name without too much baggage, but it's also a fairly clear description of what we're what to look for. Because if this eternal and, and uh, indestructible reality, if it is eternal and, and indestructible, it would have to have been with us all the time, throughout our entire search. So if we look back, what has always been there? Well, we looked upward and we became conscious of the sun, and then we were conscious that the sun disappeared at night. And we crawl into the cave and we're conscious of the blackness. And we're conscious of the lush forest and the beautiful cathedral. And then we go into the coffee shop, we're conscious that the, the forest and the cathedral have disappeared. And when we look within, we become conscious of what arises and dissipates. Bodily sensations, sounds, emotions, thoughts and beliefs that somehow form up into this story of I. So consciousness itself turns out to be the beginning and the end of our search. So only consciousness is real. It's the only thing that is eternal and doesn't disappear. And yet if there are no boundaries, as the mystics say, there's this non-duality, then in this oneness we can also say that all these things that we've noticed are also the divine. Here's what Nandamayamana says, a Hindu mystic. He is one and yet he is many. And in spite of being the many, he is one. Such is his lila, or his play. And John Scotus-Sarajina goes on and on here. We ought not to understand God and the creature as two things distinct from one another, but as one and the same. For both the creature, by subsisting, is in God, and God, by manifesting himself in a marvelous and ineffable manner, creates himself in the creature. The invisible, making himself visible. And the incomprehensible, comprehensible, and the hidden revealed, and the unknown known, and being without form and species, formed and specific, and the superessential, essential, and the supernatural, natural, and the creator of all things, created in all things. We've gone through this search, come to the end of the uh, search, come to the end of the talk here. Just by the nature of this talk, is mostly the searches has had to been uh, kind of intellectual, really what's required to, to really convince yourself of this is really direct insights. But hopefully the talk has at least raised some doubts in your mind about the, the certainty of this, this seemingly stable world, or at least some uncertainty about some beliefs you might held. So maybe you'll be inspired to continue your search for God, the eternal God, wherever, it, uh, wherever you find it. That's the talk. Anybody has any questions or comments? Pat. Um, uh, is a, uh, how, or is consciousness and awareness synonymous, or if there's a difference, could you explain? They're basic, basically the same. I often use them as kind of interchangeably. We just talk about the primordial awareness. It's just awareness that's not filtered through thought. Normally, we we see something, and the mind just automatically comes in and creates some label. But if it's just pure awareness, it's just 
really you're aware of what is the true nature of everything, which is emptiness. To me, I do see them connected pretty closely. I was thinking they might be synonymous, but I'm going to ask the expert. Yeah, well, trust your own direct experience. We could always create some difference between them if we want to. That's the nature of words. It's <laughs> dividing things up. Yeah, Steve. Is somebody, is one, I often hear people go into um, the descriptors of the consciousness, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful. That's starting to get into questionable territory because consciousness is just consciousness, right? There is no, you know, descriptors that we can put like that. Right, even, even to say consciousness is too much, really. I mean, any, any word we use is arbitrary. I mean, describing, you know, the almighty consciousness, I mean, it, it's kind of poetic. I mean, it's kind of lovely words that we can add, but, but you're true that there's no, God really has no attributes. Yeah, Bill. You never mentioned the, the bhakti uh, realization of the uh, vastness of this unchanging love, the boundless love that holds everything within itself. You never talked about that. Well, for me, it's a, a direct uh, experience, a direct realization of this space. You call it space, just a loving space. But yet, it's invisible, formless. It contains everything which seems to be so paradoxical that the mind can never understand it. So I quit trying to understand it, and then, you know, realizations come whenever they come. And it's not really understandable by the mind at all. It's just a different path to the same end. When you have this breakthrough to the uh, eternal, eternal divine God or whatever, I mean, the bhaktis come at it through love and devotion. Yeah. Almost everybody's path has a little bit of a mix of both of them. But they, it comes to the same place of, uh, of just the reality of what everything is. I mean, you talk about love, but, you know, like Simone Weil says, love isn't a feeling, it's a direction. And so there's, again, it's like we talk about blissful feeling. It's, it's, we're not looking for bliss, per se. That isn't really the divine. What is bliss and it isn't. I guess everything is a, is a paradox, but it's, you know, we're, we're looking for something that transcends all, all the opposites. Yeah, we try to use words to point to it. You know, right. point to this. Yeah. Carol? I kind of watch you too, and I see search eternal and certain. So for a bhakti, the unconditional, uh, perhaps, and uh, selfless. Yeah. So go look for that. And I think you'll find the same thing. You'll end up. Uh, consciousness will fit those parameters. Consciousness doesn't put conditions on what it becomes aware of. 
because we're horrible things, beautiful things, you know, it doesn't reject anything. So I'm not going to be conscious of you. you. You don't, you know, fit the bill. Well, that's unconditional love. That's what it is. Anybody else? Yeah, I can. I, I can't begin to entertain the notion of eternity without thinking about time and what is it and all that. I, my first inkling about this came in listening to a lecture by Joseph Campbell. I don't know that Joseph Campbell was a mystic as such, but I think he was well-schooled. He knew what it was. And he said, we, come in, we, we have this idea of eternity as being a hell of a long time. He said, it's, it's really, he says if, you, if you look at the, like the, the, the wheel, I mean, all this stuff is spinning around the wheel, the closer you get to the hub until finally you get to the hub and nothing is moving. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's that, you know, it's, it's not all this, but it's that in the center. And, and of course, I'm a visually oriented person, and so I, I like that idea. I mean, I, I clicked with that, but my, my current grasp of this, tenuous as it might be, is that it's... Uh, God and the eternal, the eternal, and me and you and it and everything. I mean, it, it's right now is it, and now is it, and now is it, and now is it, and everything. You know, I mean, can I can I live there? Can I stay there? And, uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do. You know, in my practice, I'm trying to be here now all the time, mm-hmm. and now, and now, you know, so. yeah, it. The only thing is you have to get yourself out of the road. Uh-huh. Then you're there. <laughs> I mean, the eternal, eternal moment is what they talk about. It's just... Eternity, this is eternity. Same eternity that was in the past is the same eternity that will be in the future. The same eternity that is always present right here. Yeah, it's, again, it's transcending. You have to transcend time. Kind of a relative notion. You have to have a sense of comparison between things to really have a sense of time. And so again, it's that again you're back into some sort of a concrete world that can guide you toward the divine. But it's you know if you're focused on that as some some sort of reality, then it's you're falling short of what you want to get to. We'll uh, bring the uh, morning to a close. There's some uh, tea back there if anybody wants to have a cup of tea. And until we see you again, peace to you.